My name is Willie Roberry with D'Angelo Publications, and this is the very first episode of Dap Books Podcast. Joined with me today is the founder of D'Angelo Publications, Sequoia. So why don't we get started by you telling us a little bit about yourself and about the founding of the publishing firm? This is super fun for me because I've never been interviewed by an employee before. <laughs> I feel like, um, you know, you're going to have... Uh, to dance around the questions a little bit. <laughs> um, what was the question? How did I get started with D'Angelo? Yeah, well, I've heard this story plenty of times about <laughs> how D'Angelo started, where it came from. So why yeah. don't you tell everyone else? Yeah, so the publishing company actually started with a magazine. I was in high school. I was uh, 17 years old. I graduated from high school early. And I knew I never wanted to work for anyone else. And... It's such a ridiculous story. <laughs> I've never actually told it on a podcast or an interview, but I knew I never wanted to work for anyone else. And I had just finished reading Richard Branson's book, Losing My Virginity. And I really admired him as an entrepreneur. And he started with a newspaper. And um, yeah, I watched the movie, The Devil Wears Prada. And I was always like a bit of a bitch in high school. And I was like, oh, she runs a magazine and she can totally get away with being a major bitch. Maybe I'll just start a magazine. And then that was my, my first thing out of, I technically started it in high school and then went around to get advertising and I brought like the first copy, the first magazine I ever did. It's so funny. It's like, I look back on it and this is, you know, I was, I think, 18 or 19 when I did this. Mm -hmm. And I look back on it now and I'm like, oh, my God. I thought I was so cool. Where did the magazine? Did you have a specific goal in mind? Did you want to achieve something with it? No, not necessarily. I mean, I think I just liked, liked the idea of creating something. Hmm. And um, it was a really fun, like, still I, I look back on how I put it all together and it was a really fun period. Like I would just find people who I felt like were creative people. And I was like, you know, what do you like to do? Um, you know, and one of them was super interested in food. And I was like, why don't you go around to the different restaurants and find the coolest restaurant and write an article about that restaurant and interview the chef. Mm. And so um, little, you know, things like that. I found a really cool photographer and he became like our staple photographer. His name was Austin Miller and he shot everything. He shot all of our covers. He shot all of our internal work. We had a fashion section. So we'd find different, <laughs> different fashion designers and he would shoot all of them. Um, and it became super fun. Like it was a, a great group that was working on the magazine and, for anybody who's ever been in magazines, you'd know it's, like, not a great business to be in. <laughs> There's not a lot of – I tend to get in these businesses that are hard to survive financially, um, but ultra creative. So, like, I remember I remember the ma after the third or fourth issue, like, the magazine was dying. Like, literally, I barely had enough money to print the magazine. I'd go around to businesses and, like, beg them to buy an advertisement. <laughs> like, there's a coffee shop I would always sit at and work with my editorial team – and I would, you know, go up to the owner and be like, I'll give you a $500 full page ad. And I probably spent $500 a month on coffee there. So <laughs> it's like a fair trade. Um, and then there was like this jewelry designer who 
uh, was friends with my grandfather. And like, I went to him and I said, will you buy an advertisement? He said, what kind of magazine is it? I'm like, it's a youth magazine. And his jewelry pieces were like $20,000 for a ring. <laughs> He's like, what youth person is going to afford to be able to buy my jewelry? And so it's just like a lot of that kind of hustle. Um, and that's how it started. And the magazine ran for, I think, two and a half years. Then it became an a nightlife magazine because I took all the staff out to party and I was under 21 so they wouldn't let me in the nightclub and so I was like oh I'll start a nightlife magazine and then I started a nightlife magazine and that ran for a few years um and then the first book we ever did was Slim Thugs How mm -hmm. to Survive in a Recession and I knew Slim I was friends with Slim and he was like you're in magazines can you help me publish a book I was like, sure I can figure that out Pretty much all of my career has just been, sure, I can figure that out. <laughs> and yeah, so that's kind of how it happened was went over to Slim's house, smoked a blunt with him <laughs> like <laughs> back in the days when I could smoke weed. <laughs> and um, yeah, and just recorded everything that, you know, asked him a million questions, recorded all the answers, wrote it all out. He wanted it to be in Ebonics. So wrote it all out. And I'm like, you know, a little white girl. So I went and found an editor who knew how to <laughs> edit any bonics and then pulled together the photographs and went to the printer. And that book, we got really lucky on timing. You know, he had done a song with Beyonce, had won an MTV award. Mm -hmm. And it's a really, it's, it's funny, but it's a, like, it's actually a really good book. Like if you take the time to look at it, it's got some really cool information in it. it Have you looked at it? Very fun to flip through. <laughs> yeah, Just, right? Like there are some standout lines whenever you read it that you you can't, you have to enjoy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's really, it's hilarious. And we took like tweets. I went through, you know, Twitter was just becoming a thing back mm -hmm. then. Twitter, you know, I didn't even really know what Twitter was, but he started using it before most other people did. He was really early on the platform. Mm -hmm. And so I went back through his tweets and found like the really, really funny, like ridiculous tweets, like really inappropriate. And, um, and I put those in the book cause I thought that would be really catchy. <laughs> And then it was ultimately the book was like financial advice, right? So mm -hmm. it was like really basic financial advice. Like, you know, don't, you know, don't buy rims that are more expensive than the car. Like <laughs> super basic shit. But he worded it in a way that was, when he was telling it to me, it was like really witty. And Slim's actually a really funny guy. Right. And so I tried to capture that in the book. Um, and... And then when it came out, you know, Barnes and Nobles called and said, how do we stock this book? And then there was a magazine or a news article about it and then another one and then another one. And Huffington Post wrote a piece about it. And then Time Magazine called the office and said, can we interview you? We hear that the rap artist Slim Thug is wrote it, writing a book on teaching young urban youth how to be financially savvy. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> how did this happen? And, and this was over 10 years? This oh, was yeah. This was... Oh, very different time for publishing. Very different time for publishing, for sure. Very different time for publishing. And that was done in like a traditional method of publishing. And um, yeah, I mean, I think, what was that, 2009, 2008, something like that? Yeah. Over I was still, I think I was still a teenager at that point. Might, might have been 20. But yeah, so that's the book, right? <laughs> Slim Thug, How to Survive in a Recession. <laughs> that was the first book I ever published. And then just before I knew it, I had a publishing firm. I mean, you've seen it. Working at the company, you've seen it. People just kind of come out of the woodworks. So. It's a very natural progression from 
like even year by year, it's very different than how it was before. Yeah. But I wouldn't say that anything is like force. I don't think we plan too far ahead. We kind of just go and see where we can take it. Yeah. I think I think our our goal as a publishing firm is always to move forward, but we don't actually have you know the big dream in mind. Like when you yeah. first started the publishing company or publishing magazines, you didn't have that end goal, that dream. You just No, I think that's part of the fun, honestly. I think that's part of the creativity and the fun and it's it's funny when you listen to a lot of people talk about business they're like the vision is the most important thing and I think our vision is just to be creative mm -hmm. and we're really passionate about you know digging in deep with the stories we tell and pulling together the books and all the intricate details of it like designing the cover and like all the you know when we do cool layouts and that part of it's really really fun mm -hmm. but I wouldn't say that um you know, I, I started it with a vision. I had no idea what my vision was. I just took opportunities when they came to me and figured it out. And I feel like that's what, you know, it's been 12, 14, 14 years almost that I've been in publishing. And that's been a huge part of it. And intersecting in my own personal relationships, like a lot of the books come to us through personal relationships, Wiener Schnitzel, JR, you know, we I'm friends with his wife and him and we wingsuit together and like we're at his house in Aspen and he's like, uh, you know, asking me about books. And I was like, you should do a book on Wiener Schnitzel. <laughs> so it just kind of naturally happens. Mm -hmm. A lot of them do. Um, Fidelman, the book behind you is the same way. I've known Dean since I was in my early 20s and I shot with him and he's kind of this iconic legend in Yosemite Valley. And like to be shot by Dean Fidelman is a huge deal. And then... I always wanted to do a book with him. And so it just naturally came about as the firm was more established. We'd worked mm -hmm. with people like John Long and um, it just kind of flowed. The adventure angle, I think, we do. I've always wondered for people who work at the company who are, aren't really into climbing or adventure, I like throw a lot of adventure shit at you guys. It's, I mean, <laughs> as someone who reads all of the books we publish, yeah. Uh, I feel like I've picked up <laughs> on like the lingo and the, the certain things that an adventurer would need to know. But if you throw me out in the wild with you, I, I would be. I don't know about that because we had we had a launch for Dean Fidelman's book the other day. There was like a bunch of climbers there. And then suddenly before I know it, you were out at <laughs> Joshua Tree climbing with these people. I mean, and, like if they knew that that you worked with people like John Long on a daily basis and worked with people like Honnold and Renan Ersthoek, then like those are like the, you know, the staples and the legends in that community. It is really incredible to see how the different worlds that you live in intersect because of publishing. Because yeah. you come from like mountaineering, extreme sports, you're a base jumper as well. And so we work with people in that field. And those people know other people, such as I'm thinking of Matt George and John Long. Yeah. How yeah. how that came to be. It was all yeah. very natural. And they just came to us because you have those connections and you you live in those lives. So it's like book publishing and extreme sports are very different. Very different. <laughs> very worlds. different worlds. But because you're in both, like we get to see as a publishing firm they come together yeah. in such a wonderful way. And I think, like, that's everyone who's in interested in publishing and literature know how it can bring people together. And so 
being able to witness that firsthand, like from inside a publishing firm is really amazing. I feel like we're running out of people, though, because like when I think of the intersections between really good literary writing, like great writing, um, the publishing world and the adventure world, I'll just say, not just extreme sports. I think of, you know, legend in the surfing world like Matt George. I think of legend in the climbing world like John Long. And I'm like, all right, we got to find some <laughs> other ones because there's not a lot where those two worlds intersect. Um, and then the rest of it is finding really talented writers like mm -hmm. Lucas Roman, right, who's a very beautiful, prosy writer who just so happened to grow up with Brad Gobright, who was this, you know, iconic climber who unfortunately passed away um, a few years ago now. And that one came about a bit different. Like, usually we're pitched stuff, but that one, Matt... Blank, who's a base jumping buddy of mine, sent me a Medium article called The Greater Fool that Lucas Roman wrote about his friend Brad Gobright when he died. And um, I read it and I, I remember I like came back to the office and we were all upstairs in that warehouse in Idaho. And I'm like, I want to take this article and turn it into a book. And I think it was, I think it was like Ashley at the time was like, okay, but we have like a lot of submissions. <laughs> Do you want to look at the ones that are already done? I'm like, no, this guy's a great writer. And it took two years to pull it out of him. Um, originally, he wanted to start with Aperture Like, which was a collection of short stories to get his feet wet before tackling something like a biography of this kind of iconic. Because he was just a journalist at the time. No, yeah, wasn't even like, he's a, you know, he's a nurse. You know, oh. he wasn't even like a full journalist. He was just writing for fun. Oh. And I I came to him with this ultra daunting thing of, I'm going to sign you to a two book deal and you're going to do a huge biography that ended up being like 400 pages or something. Quite hefty. Of like this iconic climber who's dead now. So you better, you know, do a good job. Right. <laughs> like but well. thank God they were friends right. because he was able to, you know, put a lot of heart and love mm -hmm. into that book. And we introduced him to John Long, who helped him a little bit mm -hmm. answer some questions. And because it's it's quite daunting taking on a book project like that. But yeah, I mean, I think the adventure world for me personally um, has been a huge benefit to the publishing side. Yes. Like, <laughs> That's an understatement, yeah. I think. <laughs> I feel like I have access in that world that most people wouldn't have just because of the relationships mm -hmm. and the time I've spent and, you know, in that world and in the mountains. Um, but, you know, the like the literary world, if we were to look at who are the epic legends in the literary world, we look at someone like Stein, right, mm -hmm. which um, was – uh, quite a feat. Were you there when we, in that, who came up with that? Was that Elizabeth? It was Elizabeth who, who came up with it. Yeah. And then you just jumped on it immediately. <laughs> were you there uh, when was, Elizabeth came up with it though? Mm -hmm. You were. I okay. believe so. Yeah. We had just had the company retreat in the Idaho warehouse. Yeah. The very first time all of the team came. Um, and you said, who can we get as one of our next authors? Yeah. For and the hit list. Of course, we just, Sequoia's hit list, we just throw out the biggest names we can think of who would be like prolific to have as one of the authors in our repertoire. And yeah, it, it, 
Elizabeth it was, was it Elizabeth? Yeah, because <laughs> I remember everyone throughout the thing was really excited about Stein, but I couldn't remember whose idea mm-hmm. it originally was. So for those people who don't know, we have this like Sequoia's hit list. I really like stalking people. That's been like a huge part of my career, <laughs> you know, in a semi-polite way. Um, and that was one of the ones on the hit list. Like <laughs> if you look at the hit list, we're doing a book kind of associated with everyone who was on the hit list. Like we just had Fight Food come yes. out mm-hmm. and we signed Fight Food because I was stalking Conor McGregor and he's Conor McGregor's private chef. <laughs> and then um, what else do we have that's associated? Well, I feel you, like you got Stein. Well, I got. Yeah. So I guess the sign this dying thing was is like I stalked him essentially for like quite a few years and sent him daily messages on Instagram and showed up to his book signings and then eventually he's just such a genuine person though. He's so cool that I felt like he was um yeah, he he's he's not he's not um egotistical in that way where he's going to like be like uh, I'm not going to pay attention to this random girl who keeps stalking me. He was like willing to give people an opportunity. Which is really I don't want to say it's rare as someone who's young and should be idealistic. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I should have faith that people will give No, it's rare. It's definitely chance. rare. Mm-hmm. I remember I went up to Dane Cook um one time like at a comedy store in LA. And he had just written a book and he had tweeted about writing a book. He's like, this is going to be the greatest book ever, which everyone says that. And I went up to him. I was like, who's your publisher? And he's like, oh, I'm I'm only looking to publish with like Simon & Schuster. Mm-hmm. I was like, okay, well, can, would you mind me like taking a look at it and reading it? And he just immediately like turned around and walked away. So there's a lot of people like that who are total, in my opinions, like not willing to give someone an opportunity or not even willing to listen to what they have to say. And Stein is definitely not like that. Mm -hmm. And one thing I've noticed is the higher up you go, um, the higher up you go, um, the more they're willing to listen. Mm -hmm. Like, for example, like, you know, Dane Cook's in the comedy. Do you know who he is? No. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) So he's a comedian, right? So (laughs) he's in the comedy world, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, for example, like Dane Cook's in the comedy world and he's like, you know, not even willing to listen for two seconds to what I have to say just turn around and walk away because he wants one of the big five publishers Mm -hmm. and then somebody like Dave Chappelle who I've been nicely stalking for like (laughs) three years now um like Dave was totally open to what I had to say Mm -hmm. the first time I met him he's like sat with me probably for about 20 minutes while I was talking to him asking me quite he's like how old were you when you started your company and what kind of why would I sign with you like and then made a point to come back and find me later and say, like, I just want to let you know that I really admire what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And then a month later, like, he was like, go make the book and let's see what happens. A month later at his birthday party that I somehow made it to the roof of (laughs) in New York City. It's like 20 people, like John Stewart, Matt Reif, and me there with a book (laughs) that we made for him. (laughs) And, um, but like, totally like sat down, looked through the book, was like, this is amazing. Let's talk about this completely open to it. And one thing I've noticed is not always the case, but the higher up you go, you hit people like an R.L. Stein, who is the top of his field. His Mm -hmm. books have literally sold 400 million copies worldwide. He is the epitome of success in the literary world. And he's completely open 
to hearing about what the opportunity is and giving me a chance, giving us a chance as a firm. And same thing with Chappelle, like the top, the freaking goat of comedy. And he's at least willing, I haven't signed him yet, but he's at least (laughs) willing to give us a chance, right? right? And that's one thing that I noticed through the process of us having this hit list and figuring out who do we want to sign next is it seems like there's there's a, yeah, a willingness to give opportunity mm-hmm. to people. I think a lot of that is specifically with Stein and Chappelle, like those two specifically are older and they have spent their entire lives making themselves to who they are right now. Yeah. So I think when you go to them with, with your little inkling of what could be (laughs) if they just gave us a chance. Like, they really see what that could become because they've been there. Yeah. Like, it's it's very smart for us, I think, to to look at people who have similar stories like yours, who who have become who they are. Yeah, self-made people. (laughs) And and that's the thing is, like, I've – I've noticed that the, the people who have created, like you're talking about, created their personas of who they are. And they admire those who have gumption and who, you know, have a dream or a vision, the vision that we've been talking about, vision, <laughs> vision um, whether it be to sign the person or to build a company or whatever it may be. And they're able to see that and admire it. And I think that as long as you come with a genuine attitude, right? Um, as long as you you come as a humble person with a, a genuine nature to who you are, then people are willing to listen. Mm-hmm. And I've found that across the board. I mean, I've, we've been really, really fortunate to work with some incredible people. And, you know, a huge part of it is just to be genuine and honest. Like I'm not coming to them and being like, I'm the biggest publisher in the world. And if you sign with me, you'll make millions because that's not true. Mm -hmm. And we're a small company and we've got a little bit of grit and that's about it. We don't have, we don't have like huge investors. We don't have no investors. We're like trying to make it on our own, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think as long as you show that genuine nature to people, they're, they're willing to listen, Right. you know? That's something we should also talk about. The because for certain people it does help that we're small and self-made and that we're going after dreams that are probably too big to be realistic. <laughs> but we, what are you talking about, it? Willie? <laughs> what did, we got R.L. Stein. <laughs> we we were on stage with Gloria Steinem. <laughs> like I don't know what you're talking about. We got big <laughs> dreams. And we're making happen. <laughs> exactly, but it is they're probably bigger than what a small company would ever. Like, oh yeah. Imagine. Yeah. Like so why? I think we should bring up <laughs> well why? Why do we have such big dreams? They don't they don't have the same type of attitude as you do, I think. Yeah. But yeah, it's I mean because I feel like it ties back to adventuring. Right? <laughs> right. So like, you know, base jumping is a perfect example. Um most people probably wouldn't go and jump off a bridge or an antenna or a building or a cliff or whatever with a parachute. Most people probably wouldn't have the opportunity to go climb in the Himalayas or live that style of life. And I've been, you know, fortunate in the path that my life has taken. Um, but those extreme activities teach you a lot about life, mm-hmm. teach you a lot about your fear, teach you a lot about your comfort zone, teach you a lot about how important it is to take risks. And 
I try to instill that in the company's motto as well. Mm-hmm. And I mean, your your firsthand witness is funny because like other than my husband, the team is probably knows me better than anyone because you guys get to witness it every day all the time. We take massive fucking risks. I mean, we were almost in bankruptcy like a year ago. ago. And we like pulled ourselves out of it somehow. Cold December. And now we're we're sitting here. You know, and so like, I think that that's, that's a, to answer your question, the reason we have such big dreams, Mm -hmm. the reason, um, I think as a company and as a, as a person, Mm -hmm. the reason that I strive for what most people would consider impossible feats mm-hmm. is because I know they can be done. I don't, I don't have that. No, I don't have that word. No. And I don't have that limit. And I don't have that because I grew up in a way and exposed myself to situations, to people, to cultures that, um, taught me valuable lessons about taking risk and the importance of it. And like stepping out of that comfort zone, you know? Yeah. That's amazing. And that's, <laughs> You know, something you see through a lot of these successful people who have made themselves just the commonality between you all. It's it's known within the publishing industry that indie pubs are are scrappy. That's a good way to put it. <laughs> and yep. we've been talking a lot about like the benefits of that because, like you said, if you go to someone with a genuine uh, with genuine interest at heart and and only good intentions <laughs> um, and honesty, they'll be more likely to listen. But there are people who will turn you down just because you're smaller. So can you tell us about the challenges of being a small publisher? Um, we, you know, we've never paid advances. So it almost, it almost makes it uh, that much harder to try to sign anybody huge, right? And we work very differently. Like each contract is designed very, very differently. We have some books that we bring in ghostwriters and we start it from scratch. I mean, like like I was saying with Slim Thug's book, we sat down and hit record and we created the book from scratch. And then we have some books that, you know, the writer has it completely laid out and they bring it to us. Most of the time we have to redo the layout, but like they're, you know, they're a fully packaged finished product and we just kind of have to run it through a loose line of editing and So every single book is vastly different and every single contract is vastly different. And I didn't start it intentionally as this form of publishing. We call it modernized publishing. Some people call it hybrid publishing. Um, But no, the first few books that I did were done in a traditional format where the author covers um, nothing. They just hand in the material and it's finished. Or in Slim's case, we create the material. The publisher covers all the expenses. And then... Um, the book comes out, the author gets, you know, little to no percentage of royalties off of it. Uh, and that's a traditional form of publishing. And then what happened was as time went on, um, I would have authors get frustrated with things like we have creative control. If we're the one paying the bills, we have creative control. So I remember it was a book we were doing called The Successful CFO. And the author didn't like the cover that I put on the book. And I was like, well, it's my money. If you don't like the cover, you know, you can pay for it. And he was like, can I? Because I will pay for it if I get to choose my own cover. And so then I was like, oh, okay. So we could actually create different types of contracts where if they wanted creative control, provided it wasn't the shittiest cover ever, we could be a little more lenient if they're willing to cover the expenses. 
and it allowed us to kind of open up this new form of what was called modernized publishing. Remember, this is like 14 years ago. It's before hybrid existed. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, right when self-publishing was just coming out. Amazon wasn't even really a thing, you know. So it's, um, yeah, it's been very interesting watching publishing as a whole. The big five had had stayed consistently the big five throughout this entire time. Uh, how they're all surviving, I still question. I mean, I remember being at the ALA, the library conference, the ALA conference in D.C. and like being next to the Hachette station and Hatchet was like the person working there was like yeah James Patterson keeps our bills <laughs> paid without him we 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 this 100 million dollar company would be under <laughs> so it's really it's been interesting watching um just you know from a small publishing company perspective not only the big 5 and how they've been dealing with the publishing world and the changes that happen some of them have created their own hybrid imprints mm-hmm. Uh, but also the hybrid publishers that pop up left and right and um, being a, yeah, being an outsider on, on that has been interesting. Then being an insider on that has been interesting by attending some of the conferences and book fairs and hearing what they have to say. But, you know, I have never been one to follow trends. Like I'm not going to do something just because the other publishers are doing it. Mm-hmm. If anything, I say we do our own thing. Um, you know, we're, we just kind of forge your own path. And if we notice that an industry, the industry is going a particular way, we might be like, if romance is a huge thing, right? So like romance becomes a, you know, a massive thing in the publishing world in the last two or three years, then we might look at doing a romance book, which we did. And we published a few, Planted in Christmas being one, Love Against the Autumn Sky being another for Willa Friedrich. My brother's best friend. My brother's best friend being another. Yeah. So we'll look at titles that we might not necessarily have looked at otherwise. So I'll take trends from the publishing industry and say, okay, we can play with that a little bit. But it's not like we're turning all of our focus of every single book towards romance. Like that, we're kind of forging our own way in that regard. Right. And I feel like that is another thing that sets us apart from other publishers is that we don't have one genre that we stick to. Like you said from the very beginning, you just chase creativity and powerful stories. Like we yeah. we just want to help authors create the best product they can and like help their creative vision come to life. And that's not going to change. Yeah. So I think that's... Yeah, I mean, it's exciting. Like I feel like we're on a whole new adventure now because we just opened our LA office um, this last year. Last year, and um, you know, you were in Idaho before, and now you're so welcome to Los Angeles. <laughs> Willie moves to Los Angeles, and suddenly within two months, she's hosting a <laughs> podcast. It's very LA of you, Wills. <laughs> but yeah, I'm really excited about like this next adventure with the LA office. And I've spent the last ten years. I have a place here. I've spent a lot of time here. Um, there's parts of LA that I like, uh, but, but I feel like it's, yeah, it's a fun adventure to see where the firm's going. And we have such a cool team. Like the publishing firm has such an amazing team um, that I feel like we've got good things in the future. Yeah. I'm really excited to see where it goes. Like I said, it changes year by year, month by month sometimes. <laughs> Literally month by month. And so, it's okay. I get you guys out of your comfort zone. I'll walk into the office and be like, and we're doing this now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the idea for the podcast was 
not even four days ago. Yep. And here we are. And we're doing a podcast. Willie, you're going to host it. Let's see how you do. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think that um, we've learned in this last year, we've learned a lot about the importance of things like um, our relationship with our authors. Mm -hmm. Like when prior to Alma being a part of the team, so Alma handles our author relations, and prior to her being part of the team, like (laughs) I'd go like, months without talking to an author and then they'd call me and be like what's going on you haven't called me because it's such an intimate relationship during the actual publishing process but after the book comes out Mm -hmm. I'd go a while without talking to them and now like Alma's whole job is keeping that relationship with the authors which is like a a full-time job but Mm -hmm. I've noticed such an impact with having her be a part of the team in that way and I guess that's another pro of being a smaller team is that we can maintain these close relationships with our authors. Yeah. All of us. And and that's the entire reason we wanted to start this podcast too. Highlight some of the authors, talk to some of the authors. I mean, get some a behind the scenes look at some of the mm-hmm. authors. I mean, so when a book comes out, obviously we have a podcast list of who we want to hit, who we want the author to do interviews with. But there's a lot of questions on there that I feel like don't get asked about the creation of the book and how the book came to be. And I felt like this was a really good opportunity for that. And since you're lost eyes on the book before it goes out to trade distribution, um, like Willie's whole job is the final eyes before it goes to trade. And so she, you know, has to very diligently read every single book and she usually knows the author quite well by then. So I'm like, she's the perfect one. And she's living in LA now. She's the perfect one to host the podcast. So good job, Wills. Well, wouldn't be here without you. First episode. It's done. You won't get fired. We'll be good. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's that's a huge part of it is like the team philosophy. That was always a big big part of it for me is like, how do I make sure that um, Barbara Cochran actually said it best. She's like this, you know, entrepreneur, real estate mogul in New York. And she, um, she's on that TV show Shark Tank. But she says all the time, uh, your team doesn't work for you, you work for your team. So making sure that you guys are happy, that you guys are fed, that you guys like, you know, are we well are, taken we care of. Well fed <laughs> at the Angelo publication. <laughs> Come for the meal plan, not the salary. <laughs> um, yeah. So like that, that was a huge philosophy for me that I tried to incorporate is like, you know, Alma was really unhappy in Idaho. It was cold. It was miserable. So I was like, okay, do you want to move to LA? You know, and then you became unhappy in Idaho. <laughs> Apparently everyone just wanted to move to LA. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that that's the thing that sets us apart from any other publisher is the unique relationship we have with each other, that we have with our books, our passion for our books, and the unique relationship we have with our authors. Mm-hmm. And that's something you don't find every day, that that passion and that integrity and that genuine love for what you do. Mm-hmm. Thank you all for watching. This has been Dap Books Podcast with D'Angelo Publications. Uh, be sure to follow along on our socials. It's Dap Book Pod at Instagram and D'Angelo Publications on all platforms. Uh, tune in for our next interview with John Long, which will be up later. <laughs> you killed it right up until the last line. <laughs> That's good. I really like that. Can we leave that in, Denisha? That's kind of cute.